Well, I welcome in those of you who are joining us now live uh, on the web, watching or listening there. We're glad to have you be a part of worship today as we continue this series of uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus gave this very simple invitation to all kinds of people, and it's such an encouraging thing to us that he picked out people who were fouled up with sin and people who were unbelievers who didn't even believe in his deity or that he was the Messiah and to anyone across the board, all kinds of people. He said, just come follow me. And he still does the same thing today. He doesn't wait until we get our belief system straight or we get our lives straightened out. He just says, as you are, come follow me. And we've talked about the, the uh, benefits that come with that, the things that Jesus said would come with it, and what a surprise it was what he didn't say and what he did say. And, uh, today, what we're going to look at is the price tag associated with this. Today's message is really all about getting down to the heart of the matter of discerning whether you are a follower of Jesus or just a Jesus consumer. You know what a consumer is. That, that's somebody who's in the deal for what they can get out of it. And clearly, in the passage that we're looking at today, it's in Mark 8, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, or you can just use your sermon outline. It's, it's listed there as well. But clearly, in the situation that we're reading about today, these people who have been following Jesus have begun to behave more like consumers. They're concerned about what they're getting out of the deal, and he is now going to hit them with some pretty heavy questions that are going to cause them to step back and consider why are they in this deal. And so today we're going to press in asking the, the question, what is the price tag? What's it going to cost us to follow Jesus? Now, I know this. When I go shopping, and I had to learn to shop pretty well in a, in a house with nothing but women, uh, I am one of those that... I don't want to even try it on. I don't want to look hard at it without flipping over the price tag and seeing how much it costs. Tell me on the front end what it's going to cost because I don't want to go try this on and decide, hey, I love how these fit and how they look, and then realize, oh, those are $85 jeans because I ain't paying $85 for a pair of jeans. So tell me the price tag on the front end. And the funny thing is Jesus didn't do that. He did the opposite of that. Without any explanation as to the cost... He just said, hey, come follow. Matthew, get up and leave your tax collector's booth. Peter, Andrew, James and John, leave your nets, leave your boats. Come on, just follow me. Come on and try it out, try it on. And where we're going to pick up today is three years into the deal. I mean, that's a long way in. He only spent three and a half years doing his public ministry and investing in these 12 guys. So way, way into the deal, he gets to this turning point moment where now he's going to really lay out some specific things that he has never shared before that are going to be very, very eye-opening and cause the disciples to think twice about what they're stepping into. We pick up in Mark chapter 8, in verse 27, where it says that Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, Who do people say that I am? Now I suggest you don't ask this question at lunch today. You might be disappointed by the answer. Uh, you may be really shocked to find out that uh, people aren't saying anything about you. You know, that might be the worst answer of all, that people aren't, aren't calling you anything. But Jesus knew there was a big buzz about him. And so they replied, well, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah. And Matthew tells us that they said, you know, some say Jeremiah. Still others uh, say that you're one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. And then a weird twist. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. The answer that Jesus gets when he says, so who do people say that I am? It's the answer you expect. It's essentially the same answer that you get today. I mean, if you said, who does the world 
outside of Christianity, who does the world say that Jesus is? And the answer was essentially a great guy, a very spiritual man, a man who apparently came from God. That was basically what they said. You know, in our lifetime, John the Baptist is the most spiritual guy we can think of. So, like, we equate you with, you're right up there with John the Baptist. Or, you know, from the past, like, Elijah or Jeremiah. I mean, Jesus, you are a really good guy. We would put you in the top tier of people that we respect. It's not the same as saying you're God or the Son of God. But, you know, you're really a pretty special guy. And you can tell Jesus is like, okay, I expect that. Now, the more important question. Who do you guys understand me to be? Well, Peter nails it. He says, you, you're the Messiah. Now, that, that's the Old Testament word. You know, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. The New Testament's written in Greek. The Old Testament word Messiah is this, the equivalent of the New Testament word Christ, which, by the way, is not Jesus' last name. That is, you know, the title that equals Messiah. The term at its simplest level just means anointed one. But it carried a ton more meaning than that for the Jewish people because they had been waiting for centuries, for so, so many generations, for the one that had been promised again and again in the Old Testament. He was to be the difference maker is maybe the simplest way that we can put it. He is going to be the one that's going to come and fix what's broken in the world. And you remember like Isaiah 61 is the classic passage about the Messiah. He's going to be the one who binds up the brokenhearted and who gives sight to the blind and releases the oppressed and sets the captive free. And he's going to do all these things that we long to have done. And I mean, to an oppressed people who are living in occupied country and who are just being mistreated and just living in poverty and such suffering, it's like, oh yes, please Lord, whatever in the world a Messiah is, we need some of Him. Send Him now in our lifetime. So you can understand deep longing for Messiah. And so we're underwhelmed by Peter's response. I mean, if you're honest, aren't you a little bit like, oh yeah, Messiah, we, we get that. Because you've been waiting for three years for heaven's sake. Are we, are we surprised at all by this? And, you know, if you read the Bible just kind of dipping and skipping around without reading anything in order, it's easy to sort of lose sight of what has and has not happened yet. If you're going, okay, three years into the deal, surely... After all the times that Jesus has said, hey, you understand who I am, don't you? Surely they, they get it by now. Don't, but don't miss this. Jesus hasn't been saying that. Jesus has not been saying, I'm the Messiah. He hasn't been saying, I'm the Son of God. The, those kinds of things, you've really been only hearing from one source. And that's the demons. I mean, think about it. For the first three years of Jesus' ministry, the only people who were going, Messiah, Son of God, it's demon-possessed people, and the demons are crying out through them. You know, they're like, Yikes! It's the Messiah! You are the Son of God! Why have you come to torment us before the time? And what would Jesus always say in response? Shut up. And then He would set them free, and then He would go, Shh, don't tell anybody what you just heard. Don't tell anybody about that. And we read that and go, What? That's not any way to gain a following. Understand what he's doing. Jesus has a primary mission and he cannot be taken off task with this. And the moment that the world begins to see and realize the Messiah is here, he is among us. There's going to be this huge grassroots movement. We are going to install him as our king. There will be a civil war in Israel. 
If Jesus goes through three and a half years of everybody seeing and knowing, oh yeah, Messiah is here. He has arrived. And Jesus is trying to hold that back because He understands there's all this misunderstanding in the minds of the people in terms of Messiah and what that means and what He's going to do. And so for three years, He's not talking Messiah. He's not going around saying, hey guys, I want you to be real clear on who I am. He's just letting it unfold. The demons are the only ones who get it. They knew Jesus in heaven. So like... The, they're recognizing, oh my goodness, God has come to earth. This is major trouble. That's why they screamed in terror again and again. And so it's actually a very big deal when Jesus says, okay, three years into the deal, guys, who do you understand me to be? And Peter, man, he knocks it out of the park. You are the Messiah. You are the one that we've waited for. And Matthew, who gives the longer account of this conversation, says that Jesus looked at him and said, you know, you are right. And Peter, you didn't figure this out. That was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Then he gives this really weird follow-up that he's been doing again and again every time the demons correctly identified him. And he says, okay, now that you understand who I am, don't tell anybody. Once again, not at all what we're expecting. You can't tell the crowds because you know what they're going to want to do. But what he's about to do now is, okay, now that we've settled this really important piece, you finally caught on to who I am. I'm about to tell you what's coming next. And it's a shocker. Now, now think about it. Can you feel the excitement of this moment? Because if, if you grew up in church, you know the story. You know where it's going to go next. And it's like, okay, no big deal. But can you not, when you just step back into that situation, can you not feel the goosebumps? As these guys who have been with Jesus and they've had so many whispered conversations, so many little sidebar chats as to, you think this is God? This guy is Elijah, the forerunner that, you know, Elijah's got to come back before the Messiah. Or, I mean, what's the, could he be the Messiah? I mean, some of it lines up, but some of it's just kind of screwy. I mean, he's not doing what we thought he would do. I mean, what do you think? And now, you know, finally, it's like for the first time, it gets said out loud, who do you think I am? And Peter, who's always going to speak up, right or wrong, he goes, I'll tell you who we think you are. I know who you are. You are the one. You're the difference maker. You're the one we've been waiting for. All of our ancestors longed for you to come. And can't you just, in that moment, just feel what these guys are feeling? Goosebumps all over. It's like, oh my goodness, could it be? I mean, what's he going to say back? And Jesus is going, on the money. That is exactly right. Holy smoke. We dreamed, maybe, possibly, it's, it's really Him. He is the one. This is going to be awesome. I can't wait to hear what's next. Oh, you're about to hear what's next. It's not what you think. Verse 31, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's how Jesus would refer to Himself most frequently, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Whoa, you talk about a roller coaster ride. We just hit the high point in this ride. It is the Messiah. This is going to be great. We're about to experience incredible stuff like we've never seen before. Jesus said, well, let me tell you what you're about to experience. If you stay with me, we're heading now for Jerusalem. Understand, for three years, Jesus has been ministering all over the heart of Palestine, right in the middle of the Holy Land. 
And for this little conversation, he has taken the disciples way up to Caesarea Philippi, way up in the north. It's like about the furthest he ever journeyed from the heart of where he did ministry. And the disciples are probably going, thank you for that. Because they've been scared to death every time they've gone into Jerusalem for quite some time. Because that's the, the hub of activity and it's where all the religious leadership is just in so much turmoil and they're plotting to kill Jesus and, and every time they thought we're going to die if we go back in there. And they have correctly assumed if we go back to Jerusalem, there's going to be bloodshed, somebody's going to die. And they're exactly right. Because the next time Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he will be murdered. And so he takes them way off to the north and says, now let's talk about things, guys. And you know when they find out, all right, we bet on the right one. We're, we're hanging with the right guy. Now, what's next? And Jesus goes, well, for the first time, you've been with me three years, but for the first time now, I'm going to tell you what's coming. We're about to begin a march headed due south for six months. We're going to work our way toward what I've come here to do. We are headed to Jerusalem, and here's what's going to happen when we get there. The elders, the chief priests, all the, the leadership of our people, they're going to band together to have me arrested they're going to torture me and then they're going to execute me. And then three days after that, I'm going to come back from the dead. You could have heard a pin drop. That is the last thing imaginable that they would have ever dreamed would have come out of Jesus' mouth. You just finally told us that you are the difference maker. You're the one sent from God. And now in this climactic moment, you follow that up with, and I'm about to go die. A bloody, horrible death. And in that moment, Peter goes, Jesus, come over here. We need to talk. Okay, look, buddy, I know you're having one of your downer days. I don't know if you need a Prozac or what the deal is, but we need to talk. We don't need a down talk like this. We, we don't need you talking about death and arrest and crucifix. I don't know what you mean by that, but we, we get who you are. We finally see it. And I mean, this whole thing about going to be arrested, going to be murdered, going to be buried, ain't happening, Jesus. I don't know what kind of parable you're making up here, but we get it. It's not going to happen. You heal sick people. You raise dead people, yet when the weather gets out of hand, you tell it to shut up and be still, and it stops. Who's going to kill you, Jesus? I don't see it happening. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to walk back over here with the other eleven. You're going to stop all this negative talk about death and dying. I mean, why do you do this anyway? Every time we get a good crowd of people, we get a little momentum going on, and people are liking us. You get up and you give one of your little negative speeches, you know, about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, and then nobody wants to hang around. So none of that today, Jesus. Let's put that away. Now we're going to go back over here. Why don't you talk about prayer? We like it when we talk, or talk about not worry. Give us, give us a little positive message. We like that. That'd be good, okay? You good with that, Jesus? No more of this. Jesus was not good with that. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples... He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That's a big verse for us. He does this in a way that he calls Peter out in front of the other disciples. And Jesus doesn't do that because he likes to publicly shame people. Clearly, Peter has been the mouthpiece 
for the collective mindset of the disciples. When Peter said, you're the Messiah, we have a pretty good sense that Peter is, is voicing what they have collectively come to realize. We've talked about it and we've decided. We get it. You're the Messiah. And when Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, would you stop being so negative? Stop this talk about that. Peter's just saying out loud what they're all feeling. Why does Jesus play this game? We're up, we're down. We're, you know, just talk nice. Tell us happy thoughts. And Jesus makes sure that they all get it. He gets Peter in front of the other disciples and he says, you get behind me, Satan. Don't you know there was something a little gratifying for the disciples who weren't as tight with Jesus? In that moment. I mean, seriously. Don't you know there's a little bit of a weird dynamic? Because you got the twelve, but within the twelve, there's the three, you know. He's always wanting to go off with the three. The three get to go to the mountaintop, see the transfiguration. You know, he takes us all to the garden, but only three of us get to actually pray with him. There's always the three. And within the three, you know, he and Peter are buds. And then, of course, there's John over there. And John's always telling everybody, well, I'm the beloved. I'm the disciple Jesus loves. That's why I call myself every time I write. And it's like, you know, so what, what's the deal? So some of the other disciples are probably going, that felt kind of good, you know. <laughs> Finally called him what he is. Sometimes we call him Satan behind his back. You know, We're, we get sick of Peter. He's always running his mouth. And, you know, get behind me, Satan. And then he follows it up with this important thought. I'm rebuking you publicly because you do not have in mind the things of God. You have merely human concerns in mind. You know what he's saying in that? Peter, you're loving life right now because it has been a good ride for you so far. You love the fact that I'm popular right now and that makes you popular because you're close to me. You are enjoying the benefits of being my follower and right now you are riding the Jesus wave. But you think like a consumer. And right now that's what you're doing. You don't like what I just said because it's fouling up the train that you're riding. It's fouling up the wave that you're on. This is going to suddenly come to a crashing halt if the things that I just said come true. And so you don't like that. And it's not because you're worried about me. It's because you're worried about you. This isn't going to play out the way that you thought it was going to play. And Peter, I love you, but I am determined. I'm going to make more of you than a Jesus consumer. I'm going to make a follower out of you because what I need to know is that when things do turn and when I head to a place that the crowds aren't cheering and going, come on, give us more. We really love that. When the crowds instead are screaming, nail him to a cross, crucify him. I want to know that I can look back and you are there because you're not just there for what you can get out of it. You are there because you love me and you are committed to following me to the end. I want you to be a follower, Peter. And he's saying the same thing to all of his disciples. And then Jesus gave them the fine print. He begins to tell them the price tag. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Interesting that this is no longer just a conversation for the twelve. It's not just a teaching for the twelve. He calls in the masses. And Jesus is always doing this thing. It's, he, he, it would seem peculiar to us. I mean, it, it would be the equivalent of, of me on Sunday morning, you know, doing part of the sermon for you all, and then just middle of the thing, just stopping. Hey, you guys on the front row, 
y'all come over here to the back with me. I'm going to explain what I just talked about, you know. I just told a story to them. I'm not going to tell them what it means. Now I'm going to explain it to you. He would do this kind of thing frequently. You know, it's like with the masses, he would give them some stuff, but he wouldn't give them the whole deal, and he would give to the, to, to the 12 and sometimes just to the three. And I mean, how weird is that? Would y'all not be a little freaked out by that? I would feel pretty strange leading that way, and yet that's, that's how Jesus did a lot of this stuff. And so now it's like there's a crowd out here somewhere, and he's been ignoring them, but he's going, now I really need for all of you to get this. So come on in close, everybody. I need you all to understand. I've explained some details to these guys, and you guys stay on the front row. You 12, this really is about to apply to you because uh, 10 of the 12 of you are fixing to to die along the way for your faith in me is the unspoken message. So you all really listen up. But to all of you, let me be clear on what I'm saying. You're following me in the moment. But I want you to understand If any of you want to come after me from this point forward with where I'm heading, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross and then follow me. Now, the first part of that, you're going to have to deny yourself. We know what that means at some level. It's not like some super spiritual phrase. We've all experienced denying yourself. I mean, how many have ever been on a diet? Well, some of us ought to try it. It's, it's, it's a healthy thing. We, we've all experienced that. We've all, well, you may not raise your hand, but most all of us have been on some kind of diet. And that's all about denying yourself. Some of us will go to lunch today, and they'll come out after we've eaten twice as much as we ought to eat, and they'll say, to save room for dessert. It's like, you know, I'm always thinking, what does it have to do with room? You know, I'm like, I can always put some more away. But in that moment, you have to decide, you know, is that what's best for me? I would enjoy it, but is that what's best for me? And you choose, oftentimes, to deny yourself. Denying yourself is, at its most simple level, is having two or more options and looking at that fork in the road. You realize, I could go this way, and it would feel good. It would be easier. I would enjoy that. But there is another option, and I don't think I would enjoy this this choice as well, but I know it would be better for me. And in that moment, you choose option B, because you know it's the better choice. That's all denying yourself is. It's like, well, if skipping dessert is denying yourself, then I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, it's not quite that simple, but the principle is that simple. It's about learning to say no to what I would love to do in this moment and choosing what would be better to do in this moment. That's self-denial. But then he says the part that honestly is, of all the things that he's going to say, this is the part that is the most lost on us today. He says... You must deny yourself and take up your cross. Now, for Jesus, in that moment, this is quite literal. He comprehends He's going to the cross. The problem for us to begin with, and, and well, there, there's two problems with this. For one, we just haven't experienced a cross, period. I mean, for us, a cross is just a lovely piece of jewelry that you wear around your neck. Everybody's got a gold cross. Or it's a nice ornament to hang on your wall. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's, it's almost a shame that we've turned the cross into that. That we've sort of romanticized it and made it something pretty when the cross was never that. The cross was not only a form of execution, but it was a horrible, horrible form of torture. And we've just never experienced at any level the reality of the cross. I mean... We, we hear about occasionally on the news people who, who are tortured, but it's so far removed and it's, you know, 
we live in such a cleaned up culture they won't even show it to us on TV, thankfully. These people lived in a world where Rome used public execution and public torture constantly. I mean, it was a normal week when you went for a walk and here on a hillside are people who were hanging, suffocating, slowly bleeding to death over a span of days. Because this is what Rome did to punish people. This is what Rome did to make a point. And they had all seen it lots of times. And you didn't have to be guilty to wind up on a cross. Cross always led to death. But the bad part was that getting there took so long. It was so excruciating. As people hung there, slowly bleeding out, drowning in their own body fluids that collected in their lungs. They had all heard the gurgling gasps of people hanging on a cross and trying to pull themselves up enough to take another breath. They had smelled the stench of the cross. Old blood. Urine and defecation because... Over time, you, you lose the ability to hold on to that. There was just all of this horrible stuff mixed together when you said, uh, you know, the cross, electric chair, death by lethal injection, hanging, whatever. None of those come close to the meaning of a cross. Horrible torture. And when Jesus said, okay, now here's what you've got to get. This is the new part. This is the fine print, the price tag. If you follow me, you better get used to strapping on the idea that you're going to have to deny yourself and you take up a cross. You face a cross. Now, th this is the other part of the disconnect for us. First of all, we haven't experienced just seeing and smelling and, and hearing the terrible realities of a cross. But the other half is we're not worried about it. Because in truth, there's nobody in this room that's going to die on a cross. There's nobody watching online that's going to die on a cross. It doesn't happen that way today. We don't live in a time where people in our country are being executed. And there are a lot of people being martyred on the planet. Lots of people being martyred. But you're not in danger of going to a cross. And so that's kind of the other disconnect. It's like, oh, okay, what's the big deal? Take up your cross. It must be super figurative. Well, for his listeners... It was very literal. Ten out of the twelve on the front row are going to be executed because they follow him. So he's not playing games with them. He is looking at them and, and just trying to say, I want to be fair to you. I want to just lay it out for you. I'm going to give you some months to digest what's coming before it happens because you are watching, many of you are watching your own fate unfold in my body. So I'm telling you in advance what's coming. Well, so what does that mean for us? This whole thing of taking up a cross. Well, it's about sacrifice. It's about a price that we're going to wind up having to pay along the way. And the crowd at this point, some of them are terrified. Because this isn't some distant reality. This is, oh my goodness, we've seen this. We fear this. It's not hard for us to imagine why people would get stirred up and how people could die in the, in the course of this unfolding. And you can only imagine that there are people in the crowd who are going, okay, thanks for filling us in on that. I wish you'd told us a little earlier, but Jesus, we just want to let you know. Miracles we loved. Your teaching was great. We never had a Sunday school teacher half as good as you are. Our pastor looks pitiful compared to you. You're the tops. And the miracles were just fabulous. We loved the fish and the bread, you know, but you've kind of worn that one out. We'd like spaghetti next time, but, you know, we, we just, we like the food. And uh, that day you killed the storm. That was, that was good. I mean, we really appreciated that. And uh, the healings, 
the healings were nice. I mean, it, we, we've had loved ones. I mean, when you did it for my mother-in-law, I kind of questioned that. But I mean, all the other healings, they were, they were just really special. And we appreciate all this, but we just want to let you know, as much as we appreciate all that, we're going to kind of hang back for a bit. We sort of want to see how this plays out. We've got a lot to do at home. So this whole thing about following you to Jerusalem, we're not so much going to be there, but we would like to get your newsletter. And uh, if you'll give us your address to your website, we're going to follow you online. We'll, we'll listen from home, okay? That's the plan. And Jesus goes on to say, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Okay, audience participation time. Who in the room wants to save your own life? I do. Uh, everybody can raise your hand because the truth of the matter is we all want to save our own lives. It's why we diet. It's why we exercise. It's why we take our pills. It's why we take our statins to, to reduce our cholesterol. It's, it's why we try and break our bad habits and do all this stuff because we want to save our lives, right? I mean, if, if we don't, then there's probably something badly wrong and we probably need to sit down with somebody who is a professional that can help us. We all want to save our lives. And the universal reality is it doesn't matter how much you want to save your life. You're going to lose it. I don't care whose diet you go on. I don't care how many bad habits you break. The mortality rate is still 100%. I mean, how many of you this week spent time talking with a relative who fought in the Civil War and is telling you what it was like to fight in the Civil War? Nobody. Why? Because it ended 149 years ago this month, and nobody lives that long because everybody expires. It doesn't matter how much you want to save your life, you are going to lose it. And the thing that Jesus is beginning to pull the curtain back on and help us understand is everything that you value in your life on this earth, all the stuff, all the earthly relationships, that stuff, you're going to lose the things that you have valued. But it is possible for you to lose it in a way that has meaning. That you can give up some of those things that actually need to go. Some of the things that you valued and held on to that weren't actually the best for you. That you can let go of those things. And in so doing, you can let go of part of your life. There can be a part of your life that dies. And that can have real meaning because in the end, you're going to lose those things anyway. And what he's saying is, whoever loses... Some of your life in the form of a relationship that you give up, a job that you, that you choose not to take, a stuff that you choose not to hold on to, that you're going to lose it eventually. If you choose to lose it now, it will eventually impact your future. I'm giving it away now so I can lose it with purpose and meaning. He says in verse 36, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? He's asking... Really thought-provoking questions. Here's essentially what Jesus is doing. It's like he's saying, let's play an imagination kind of game. So here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to do this with me. I want you to imagine that you get everything you want in this life. Think that through. Flesh that out. Everything you want. Every outfit. You get your dream house. You get every vehicle you ever ever wanted. You get the success. You get the career. You get 
all the money that you ever want to bank, you get it put there. You wanted a beach house, you got it. You wanted a boat, you got it. You wanted a farm with horses, you got them. You get it all. Guys, you get the hot wife. Ladies, you get the stud muffin husband who's sensitive and strong. Whatever you're looking for. You got it all. Okay, that's your life. And you get to keep it for the rest of your life. You get to have a long life. But here's the catch. You get to the end of your life and you realize by choosing that life, by getting all of that stuff, by doing what I wanted to do, there was one fatal flaw in the whole thing. I have sacrificed my eternal soul. Now, let me say this as an aside. I realize some of you, some people don't believe in the eternal human soul. There are a few people who don't believe that. And in Jesus' day, there were some people who didn't believe in that. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in a resurrection. Uh, there was a religious group that were, had a lot of power. And they were called the Sadducees. And they did not believe in the resurrection. And their reason was a very good reason. Because the Old Testament did not teach about an afterlife. It didn't teach about heaven and how to get to heaven. It's not there. They just didn't believe in any of those things. That's why they were sad, you see. They did not believe in life after death. They were Sadducees. Well, there were other people who came along. And they said... You know, shortly before Jesus' time, we actually don't think that death is the end. We believe that there's more to us than the body and that the human soul lives on. And Jesus came along and confirmed that. He's like, you're exactly right. You will live forever, one, one place or the other. And by the way, 97% of Americans believe in an afterlife, which is pretty striking because not nearly 97% of America is Christian. But almost everyone understands this basic concept, the, the eternal human soul, that that. You know, right now, you're just inhabiting this body. But you have a soul that's going to live on and on and on and on, and your body's going to wear out after a short span of time. That's a fundamental part of a Christian worldview, of, of a worldview in light of what Jesus is teaching here. And he's saying, so, okay, understand, you get to the time when you have worn out this earth suit. This body is used up, and you are about to step from this little span of time that you get on earth, whatever it is, 70, 80, 90 years... And he said, when you get to that point where you're going to go from living in this body on the earth into eternity, where you swap in 70, 80, 90 years for, hey, when you've lived 70, 80, 90,000 years, you've got a long, long way to go still. And he says, you get to that pivotal moment where you're fixing across from one end to the other, and you look back and go, man, my life, it was the most awesome life anybody could ever have. It was so good. And you look ahead, and you can't see anything resembling the ending of what is to come, and you realize, I have forfeit my eternal soul to have the life that I had. And in that moment the most sobering reality of your whole existence sets in. I made the worst deal a human being could ever make. I mean, the equation is very simple. Awesome life that I was after on earth equal forfeited my soul for all of eternity. Does anybody want that equation? <laughs> 
not a person in the room. No one listening would buy that. It's a terrible deal. Nobody wants that deal. Now, by the way, what does it mean to forfeit your soul for all of eternity? Does it mean lights out? You're just gone. Does it mean torment and torture? Does it mean hell for all of eternity? Truth of the matter is, Jesus doesn't say. I'm not going to sit here and speculate on it, but I will say this. It ain't good. It's not a little bit good to forfeit your soul forever. Jesus goes on from that with a second question. He says in verse 37, Or what can anyone give in exchange for your soul? He's saying, okay, so here's what I want to know. What would you trade for your soul? Or in reverse, at that moment when your life is over, your awesomest life imaginable, and you get to the end of it and you realize, oof, because I always chose whatever I wanted with no consideration for anything else. I just wanted what was great, what was fun, what felt good. Because of those choices, now I'm at the end of that short life, facing eternity, and I have forfeit everything I could have had, and there is nothing but misery ahead. He says, in that moment, what would you trade to change your eternal destiny? You tell me. Everybody knows the answer. In that moment, you would trade the same thing I would trade. Anything. Everything. Wouldn't you? You're at the end of your life facing your eternal destiny. Would you not sacrifice anything in your past? Everything in your past. Tell me in that moment when you were going into a godless eternity... In that moment, wouldn't you look back and say, God, I would, I would give up any relationship. I would give up any of my stuff. I would give up my career. I would change anything you want me to change because I am facing eternity where I have sacrificed my soul. Anything, God. In that moment, we're ready to negotiate. But also in that moment, a powerful realization has set in. Your soul is greater than your things. My soul is greater than every relationship to me. My soul is of greater value than my career. My soul is of greater value than what you think of me. My soul is of greater value than how early I get to retire. It's more important to me than anything else, and so is yours to you. I know it about you. You will not get to that moment and go, oh, well, no big deal. Who cares? I mean, how bad can it be? It's only like, I don't know, 40, 50, a bazillion years. How bad could that be? It could be terrible. It could be worse than anything we imagine on earth times eternity. And he's saying, think through this. What would you give in exchange for your soul in that moment? So I can only imagine that Jesus is causing the crowd to begin to think, okay, so what you're saying is, if we follow you to Jerusalem... And we're going to have to give up a lot. This is going to be very costly for us along the way to do that. What you're saying is that one day, these things that we're choosing to give up to follow you now, that we would ultimately lose all of those one day anyway. And Jesus is going, yep, that's exactly right. And so what you're saying then is that if we give it up now or along the way in such a way that we're, we're doing it to follow you, 
that that choice, those little choices are going to impact our eternal destiny. And Jesus is going right on the money. That's exactly right. And it's like at that point you're going, well, then it's not really such a big sacrifice to give anything up for you. If it's changing what we're going to experience for all of eternity and Jesus is going, you're exactly right. Now you're cluing into why I'm telling you this. It's not like, oh, I'm making such a big sacrifice to follow Jesus. No, I'm actually, there is a real payoff for eternity in everything that I do. And Jesus goes on to make one more statement. He says in verse 38, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. It's like, let me tack on this one thought for you here. <clears throat> If you follow me, understand there are going to be people who come against you because of that and who say, are you a part of this whole movement, all this mess? Do you belong to this guy? If in that moment you go, oh, wait a minute. No, 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 you, you misunderstand. I mean, they were just passing by and I thought they were selling stuff and I came out and I mean, you know, they were like serving food and I, you know, bread and fish sounded good to me. And there were like people getting healed and they were talking about getting blessed. And, you know, I kind of had this little throat thing going, a little tickle. And I thought, you know, it might be good to get a little help with that. And, and you know, I had some chest pains. And I just thought, you know, maybe if he touched me, it might be good to get rid of that. And, I, no, I don't belong or anything. I was just, it was kind of like a show. I went to the show. But don't, don't mistake me as one of his followers. And Jesus is going, I want to be really clear. If in the moment when the world says you... Are you one of his? He said, if you're ashamed of me in that moment, be real clear. I will be ashamed of you. I'll be ashamed of you before my father. I'll be ashamed of you in the judgment. Now, it is interesting to consider that statement and the grace of God in light of Peter. Because just a short while later, six months later, in the most critical moment, Peter, in the midst of an angry crowd, has a girl look at him and go, Are you one of his followers? Did, don't you belong to me? No, 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 not me. You've mistaken me. You know, three times around. And he gets to the point he's cursing, saying, I don't have anything to do with him. Don't know the man. And so we would sort of expect at this point that Jesus would come back and go, Peter, I am ashamed of you. We're done. Get out. Instead, he forgives him and entrusts the whole enterprise to him. How much grace is there in that? But there's also kind of the unspoken message of, don't do that again. <laughs> I mean, at this point, I'm counting on you to lead and feed my sheep. So don't. And the cool thing is, it didn't happen again. Because when Peter had seen the risen Jesus, there was no more denying. There was no more hiding or shrinking back. And Peter would wind up nailed to a cross, unwilling to deny his faith in Jesus, willing to die for the one he had followed and no apology necessary. Because he had seen the real deal. Well, from this teaching, there are four truths that I want to mention to you. And I'm just, I'm just going to lay them out. I'm not going to expound on them very much. But uh, they're worth recognizing. The first one is this. Salvation is free. It costs us nothing. But following Christ will eventually cost us something. You know, you can't get born again. You can't get into the family of God and have your sins forgiven. Unless you're willing to receive a gift that you didn't earn. Jesus, with His death and His blood, did everything necessary to satisfy the wrath of God, 
to take on the penalty for your sin, to break the curse of sin, and to free you from fear of the grave and the power of the enemy. All that was done through the death of Jesus. You can't do anything to deserve it or earn it. It's a free gift. But, having received that and entered in, you just need to know, along the way, now as a follower of Jesus and a child of God, it's going to cost you something. There are going to be some choices along the way where for you to do what's necessary for you to follow Jesus, where there's going to be a, a heavy price, there will be some sacrifice, some difficult choices for you. Second truth, this choice will feel like a moral imperative. It will for you, and it won't for everybody around you. You're going to feel like in that moment, oh my goodness, I now realize I have got to do this. I have got to quit this. I've got to start this. And the thing of it is, it will be for you. And the people around you, they won't be saying the same thing. They won't be going, oh my goodness, we've got to stop doing the same things. We've got to start doing what you're... Mm -mm. This is going to be about you. And in that moment, it is an absolute moral imperative. And you're going to realize, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, I can't stay in this relationship. I can't accept this job. Ooh, I can't take this trip with you. I can't stay here if I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm going to have to leave. I'm going to have to start doing this. I'm going to have to make this change because to follow through on that, to keep doing this, would dishonor Christ. And what's neat about that is, in that moment, you don't have to worry about it. You're going to know. You're just going to know. You will not need a sermon. You won't need a Bible verse. You won't need your preacher there to go, you're not supposed to do that and you're supposed to make this change. You're going to know. And the cool thing about that moment is you're going to find out then whether you're a Jesus consumer or a Jesus follower. When you face that choice, it will be very clear whether you are in this for what you can get out of it or if you're genuinely a Jesus follower. Because some of this stuff's hard. When you let your heart get attached to somebody and you knew in the deepest part of your being that somewhere along the way Jesus put His finger on that and said, this isn't healthy for you. And you can't stay in this relationship and follow Me. And you said, but I love Him. She's so fine. And we try and make an excuse for it. In those moments, you define whether you are a consumer or a Jesus follower. Third truth, this choice will feel a lot like a death. And the reason for that is because many times that choice causes a dream that we've carried for a long time to die right then. And don't misunderstand. It's not at all a situation where, oh, follow Jesus and every fun thing you ever experienced is out the window because Jesus hates fun. Follow Jesus and all your dreams go down the toilet because Jesus hates your dreams. It's not that way at all. Just the reality of life is that some of the things, some slices of what you dreamed about and planned for your life, some, of the, some parts of that are spot on and it will be God's great joy to bring those things to fulfillment and God birthed those desires in you to begin with. But there are slices of our dreams that God did not give us that. 
we just set our affections on something. We imagined something. We saw something modeled for us that wasn't healthy and went, oh, I just always imagined that I would, you know, whatever, that I would have a particular job and that would be so awesome if I could ever just be the whatever. And then in your life, you get to that point that you have that opportunity and, er, you know, it comes to a stop and you realize in that moment, oh, my goodness. I always dreamed that I would be so happy, I would be so successful, my life would be meaningful if I could just be a... And you fill in the blank. And now the opportunity is before you. And in that moment, you face the, the shocking realization of, oh my word, I always dreamed of this, but now I've, I never realized if I took that job, if I pursued that career, it would mean this. I never realized that. And I can't pursue that. And for me, be a Jesus follower. Probably the most painful one is it's about a relationship. And for so long, you've had your sights set on a particular kind of relationship or a particular person. And then finally, that begins to happen and it begins to unfold. And, and you realize, oh my goodness, I actually could spend potentially the rest of my life with this person. They're willing to say yes, and I do, and I will. But some things have come to light now. And God has spoken in that situation. And now there's a fork in the road. And I know what I want. I want to be with this person. I want to stay in this relationship. And God has shown me that there's something fundamentally wrong here. And I can either stay with this person and miss out on what God has for me, or I can follow Jesus. That is a costly choice. You know, sometimes it's, it's about letting go of stuff. Sometimes it's about letting go of a home or whatever. It's not that Jesus is trying to pry out of our hands everything that we enjoy, but you'll know when you get there, and it's going to feel like a death at times because when you get to that crossroads, you've got to choose this part of what I have dreamed about for so long. I've got to let it go. I've got to let it die and say, that's never going to happen. I set my sights. I set my heart on something that I thought would be so great for me, and Jesus all along knew otherwise. And I just got to let that go and let that die. I can say this is the fourth truth about that. When this happens, it'll be a defining moment for you. And that's a good thing. Because in that moment, when you look at what you could have, and you could have it for a long time, or you look at what Jesus is calling you to do and following Him, you're going to find out whose you really are. You're going to find out whether your life belongs to you or belongs to Him. You're going to find out if you're a consumer or if you're a follower. And it is a liberating moment. It's costly. And there's some pain involved. We're talking about sacrifice. I mean, the, the cross is a painful picture for a reason. Following Jesus has painful moments in it. Sometimes... Really painful seasons. And as painful as it can be, I wish this for every one of you. Because there's so much good that comes out of it. Some of you are so well acquainted with the realities that we're talking about today. I am personally well acquainted with it, and I wish it for you. Because of what it does in us. I can think of a number of different examples that apply, but probably none that just stand out with such stark contrast as what happened to me 14 and 15 years ago. I was a young man in ministry 
had spent years going to school and, and interning and training for ministry. And I had known for a long time two different things that God was stirring in me. One was I knew that He had called me and shaped me to pastor. And I had come to understand that He had called me and designed me for church planting, which came as a real surprise. But I, I over time, had become really clear on that. And at the time, in 1999, I was serving as the student pastor of the First Baptist Church of Fairhope. Great church. Loved where I was. Loved the people there. And was completely blindsided when in September of 1999, that church, in one moment of time on a Sunday morning, actually about noontime on a Sunday, that church was split in a worship service. It was a staggering moment. And in the stuff that flowed out of that, one of the things that came out of that was that as 300 people lettered out and left to go start a new church, the people who were left behind, some of the movers and shakers, the the folks with authority and some of the people on the pastor search committee immediately looked at me and said, hey, you could be our next pastor. And hey, I'm a you know 31-year-old guy that's longing for the day that I get to be the lead dog, you know, in a young man's mind. It's like, you know, I'm sort of tired of, of trying to follow somebody else's lead. I'm ready to use the, the gifts that I've got. I'm like, yeah, that would be a cool way to just get promoted to the next rung in the ladder. kind of how it felt. And I'm like, God, surely you got to like this idea, don't you? And I mean, God was just so clear in that. He's like, nope, I really hate that idea. That would be a train wreck. And there's a part of me going, come on, God. I mean, this couldn't be set up any better. People here are just ready to Move me into this position. There's some people here who'd like to hang me, but, you know, most of the people like me. And, and God, this has got to be good. And he's going, nope, not at all. That is not a good idea. Well, in the same week that that church split happened, and part of what was hard about that split was of the 300 people who left in that first month, a bunch of them were friends. It was the, the young adults. It was my peers and, you know, a lot of the people who were who were really faithful to serve and lead and give and do all those kinds of things. I, I am not kidding you. On the day after the church split, and, and don't misunderstand, I'm not saying this to, to bash anybody. People can get misled and tangled up in stuff they don't need to, but the, the pastor who was leading in that movement, who was a good friend of mine, sat down with me the very next day and said, I messed up. I did something I was never supposed to do. I know I was in the wrong. I have known all along that you were the person who was supposed to pastor a new work being planted in this community. And I got caught up in wanting to escape some things here, and I did something I wasn't supposed to do. And now this whole thing's kind of like a snowball going down a hill. And I'm not supposed to be pastoring that, and now I'm going out here. Will you come with me? And we'll co-pastor together to begin with. I'm looking for a teaching job or some way to get out. I will... In the coming months or years, I will bow out. I'll get completely out of the picture and you can just take over and you can pastor the new church. And there's a part of me in that moment that's like, okay, that's a little weird, but okay, God, hey, there's 300 people and, you know, already, and uh, part of the deal that, that, you know, to just, the enemy loves to do this dangle carrots out there. He's like, you know, I'll tell you, before we've even had our first meeting, We've already got a committed budget of $450,000 a year. This is the salary that I will make. This is the salary that you will make. And I'm going to hand the reins over to you. You will be the pastor of this church. Just say yes. That's in all that happened within the first three days after that split took place. Once again, I'm kind of going, okay, it's not ideal circumstances, but 300 people and boy, right off the bat, they get like almost 30 acres of land donated to them and they've got all this money committed and 
I'm like, well, God, you did put church planting in my heart, and it's going to be a, a church plant of sorts. Okay, curtain number two. That's got to be the one, right, God? Don't you want me to do this? And I mean, he didn't even waste any time. This wasn't one of those I had to pray like for weeks over. I mean, that day, it's like double thumbs down. Absolutely not. Do not even consider it. I'm thinking, this really stinks, God. I have no idea where to go from here. Now I'm hanging on in a church that you're telling me I'm never supposed to pastor. I know you've called me to plant a church somewhere, sometime, and I'm like in the worst place in America to plant a church because this whole thing has got the people who are left in the church that I'm serving hating any talk about church planting. This has poisoned that as an opportunity. And so you want me to stay here? And he's like, for the moment, I want you to stay right here. And over the next 11 months, just prayed and waited and loved the people that we served going, I don't understand. I know you've spoken really clearly, and I know path number one looked good, and you said no, and path number two looked better, and you said no, and path number three looks like a dead end, because I know you've called me to plant, and now I've gotten clear you've called me to plant right here in this region, but there aren't any, there's no land, there's no money, there's no building, there's no equipment, and there's not some 300 people wanting to go with me and do this, and when End of June, 1st of July, 2000 rolled around. It was like the Holy Spirit just pressed a button to go, bing, time to begin. Six weeks from now, start this thing. Start this thing where? Don't have land or a building or a chair to sit in or a pencil to write with or a dollar in the bank to go toward this. And I don't have a team. And the Lord just said so clearly, I have already gone before you. I am planting a new church. I'm inviting you to get in on it. That's it. Are you willing to follow? I want to tell you, as inviting as those other opportunities look, I could pastor the largest evangelical church on the eastern shore. I could pastor a new work with a big piece of land, prime property, and movers and shakers and plenty of people. No, no. But you could follow me and go where there's not anybody and there's not any land, but I'm there. How does that sound? And I want to tell you, part of that sounded crazy because I had finally gotten the benefits I've been waiting for for two and a half years to go with the salary that I was promised. And it's like, I finally get that. God, it's almost like the enemy's way of going, yeah, let's just dangle one more care in it. So now I'm supposed to resign a full-time position and go where there's not any money. And I know of like five other young couples that would like to be a part of that. And that's going to be the church. And he's like, you're not following five couples anywhere. You're following me. Is that not enough? And in that moment, it didn't feel like a big, hard decision. It didn't, honestly, it didn't even feel scary at that point. Because it was so clear, Jesus is marching to Jerusalem. Jesus is marching to a new place. And he's already gone before me. And there will be some sacrifice. And there will be some paydays without paychecks. And there will be some, some hard parts in that. But he has gone before me. I want to tell you, that led to... The most exciting adventure of my life that's been going on for 14 years now, and it, it truly gets better and better, discovering what he's called me to, discovering what he had in store. And it's so amazing how that kind of stuff plays out, that, you know, God brought in the right man at the right time, and First Baptist Church has flourished under his leadership. It would have been a train wreck under mine. I'm such a spiritual mismatch for there. I am.
personality and, and everything. The church that looked like, man, option two that just would have been the place to be, doesn't even exist anymore, which is tragic. But it's like, you know, when along the way you're going, when we're over here trying to, I mean, we literally fished chairs out of the garbage to sit in for our little church meeting, meeting in a little bar at daycare facility. And it's like, you know, you keep hearing these, oh, did you hear about the three-quarter million dollar gift that they got at the new church? And, you know, did you hear that they've got this and they've added this staff? And it's like, well, it doesn't feel really fair over here. And the Lord spoke to me really clearly in that and said, just give it time. I, I want to demonstrate what happens when I'm in the middle of a church plant and when I'm not. I didn't share that with anybody for years and years because I'm like, that, that sounds arrogant or whatever. But he so clearly impressed that on my heart. And I'm like, all right, God, I'll, I'll trust you in that. All of us face crossroads in life. And in that moment, denying yourself may mean saying no to a dream job. It may mean saying no to a dream relationship. And it may mean taking curtain number two or curtain number three and not knowing what in the world lies behind that curtain. And it feels like such a sacrifice. And I want to tell you what's on the other side of that curtain may involve some sacrifice, but the payoff is so much greater than whatever it cost us. And it impacts not only our lives today, but it will impact your eternal destiny. For some of you, what we've been talking about today, it's not something way out there that's theoretical. It's your life right now. Somebody's got a text or an email right now that's awaiting your response. And your response is a defining decision. Whether you're going to follow Jesus or you're going to follow the easy road. For some of you, there is a relationship that's hanging in the balance. And you're about to make a decision whether you're going to continue with it or whether you need to say, mm -mm, I can't marry you. I can't continue to live with you. I've got to follow Jesus. Some of you are in a marriage and we're on the verge of taking a, a direction that God wasn't leading you in, but it just looked really appealing. And right now, it's a defining moment for you to decide, am I going to follow what looks easy or am I going to follow Jesus? On the day that's in question, Mark chapter 8, it's a crowd of people with Jesus in Caesarea Philippi is not the same crowd that marches into Jerusalem with him six months later. A bunch of people heard what Jesus had to say and went, you know, I've got some things on the stove. I probably better go back and check. I don't think I'm going to follow you to Jerusalem. In the weeks that followed the resurrection, when the reports came out about this gruesome murder, but then how the murdered guy with wounds and all still exposed is alive and is turning the world upside down, what would those people have given to have changed their decision? The ones who shrunk back, the ones who said, oh, I think I'm going home today. I don't think I want to follow the Jesus movement today. What would they have given in exchange to have not wimped out? But you don't get to make some of these decisions a second time. You've got to choose to follow Jesus today. Would you join me as we go to him together in prayer? Lord, it's not easy. And you didn't pretend that it would be. And we need it to be. We want it to be. Would you help us to count the cost? And would you help us to follow through with obedience? 
we confess to you that there is so much in us where we just think like consumers. We want the church that gives us the most. We want the life that gives us the most. And ultimately, what we need to want is you, and we struggle with that. Would you forgive us for our selfishness? And would you help us to have hearts that hunger for you more than anything else? Jesus, I want to follow you. I struggle to do that sometimes. Would you help us collectively to recognize those moments when we have to choose, to see with clarity when we need to take a different road to follow you? Would you give us the strength, the courage, the faith to follow you in that? Would you help some of us today who need to, to choose the Jesus fork in the road to choose life? For some of us who have lived completely on our own and we need to choose today for the first time to become followers of you, would you help us today to do that? In our hearts to just say yes to you, Jesus, and your Lordship. We offer ourselves to you and we pray, Holy Spirit, for your help and your guidance and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.